0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Hello? What's up? Are you there?
2: I'm, I'm here. Are you there? Oh,
1: yeah, I'm here. Nice. All right. Well, welcome back to the Outdoor Drive podcast. Now that we got that out of the way, this is episode number 93? Yes, sir. All right, we made it. 93. That's only like, maybe like what, seven more away from 100? Dude, your math's improving. Jeez well done. Luis, that is <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad to be here. This is your boy, East Coast Trev, and... This is Steve. Welcome. Welcome to the Outdoor Drive Podcast. Pretty excited about tonight's show, honestly. Something that, you know, we've wanted to talk about for quite some time, and then just not having the right person to do so. And I... You guys are just going to want to have to listen in to find out. Well, I mean, you guys already know why you're here.
2: Don't yeah, I, I would assume.
1: They clicked the link. They saw the title. All right. Well, we got Mr. Philip Glass. Uh, he's from Texas, but is part of, you know, SCI and all this incredible stuff and haunting all over the world and doing all kinds of things. I'm not going to break into his intro. We'll let him tell the story, but kind of amazing.
2: And and some of the stories, man. Whole cow.
1: Yeah. Hold now, on to your seat when it gets it down to about the last 30 minutes of this one.
2: Yeah, I mean the the lead up, the explanations, the discussion, which I I'll be honest, we it was another one of those limited discussion. He had the answers before we had to ask a question. I mean, incredible conversation with the guy, knows his stuff, and, and he's been around, you know, not just you know he's just not a do it yourself freeze he got to help in some movies he got to go out and do what we all wish we could do and argue conservation on CNN and win which was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole
1: show actually i want i bring it back 2 seconds so one of the things i did not talk about or ask in the podcast was kind of what the movie trophy was and we kind of were a little too deep in conversation for that. Right. So I'll break it down to you guys real quick um, for you that are still listening. haven't skipped forward to him. Um, trophy is a documentary that is about trophy hunting. Um, they take it over to Africa and kind of go through the things that actually happen over there and what it's actually all about. The pluses, the minuses on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and it's kind of opened up a lot of eyes to what, trophy hunting really is or what it what it entails and why people do it and so on and so forth it's it's an incredible thing and you know you should probably go and watch it um it it changed my interpretation of a lot of different things and it answered a lot of questions that i actually had um and philip will go into detail on that but we'll let him get to that stuff um first off i just want to start off with congratulations to you steven for what? You're in what round 2. I do? You're in round 2 of the bow hunting league. Right. Yeah.
2: Shot in. Well, I I I almost got lucky, I'll say in this one. Uh my competitor just put a new sight on and and left the door wide open. He was the number 2 shooter in the league all season. So I I am definitely uh running on a lucky streak right there that he shot so wide and opened it up for me.
1: Well, before that, I mean you you made it into the first bracket. That, yeah, so now I, you're I shot out of the in. original, now you're into the
2: right, right. So I, I got out of the I, I shot in and I I will be completely honest, my wife schooled me on the shoot-in. So she placed first in the shoot-in. Out of the 54 slots open, she placed number 1 uh with an X and a, I think it was like a 5 16 or something on the second shot. Wow. And I was, I think, like two and a half inches out or something, but just enough to squeeze in at number 52, I think. Wow. I just barely made it in. So, naturally, I went in with the worst seed you could ask for against one of the best seeds in the league. And that's why I said I got a little bit lucky. He had an off day. I had a decent day. And uh, we're on to round two. So,
1: we're, hopefully we're getting there.
2: By the time this drops, I'll be on to round three. I hope so. That comes out what? tomorrow uh round two team ups will be posted tomorrow or tonight at midnight however you want mm. to look at it and uh we'll run till the following monday so once i know who i'm shooting against i could go out and do my deed and see what happens and then uh see if i can creep into round three into the sweet 16 and then uh Fingers crossed. If I can make it three more rounds, I'm gonna be absolutely stunned. But I know I can do it. It's
1: just a matter of doing it. Hell yeah, man. Well, looking forward to it. Watching you get go through it, man. I kind of failed and didn't get in on it. So it's you were also it in the middle year. of
2: building a bow in the middle of the week of the shoot-in. So yeah, well,
1: I tried getting it done, and then it just didn't work. Obviously, with work and everything going on, and things have kind of been crazy. And wait, well, you know what? My lesson uh, for
2: the year is on this. We got to start shooting week Mm. one and build points.
1: Yeah, I've definitely learned that. And that's probably (laughs) what I'm going to end up doing.
2: Jumping in three weeks before the shoot in didn't do us favors.
1: (laughs) No, not at all. And you know what? Honestly, another thing that you guys don't want to miss out on and want to be part of this week one is um, the the deer competition or the elk competition. Those things are definitely coming up on the bow hunting league and get your team in, man. You want to be an outdoor drive team shoot us a message we'll send you over the the link and you guys can be part of the outdoor drive team I guess definitely
2: the more teams we can build under the show man the better I mean, it'll be so we're in it to win it let us know and be proud to have you represent us and us to support you
1: absolutely uh, one thing I kind of do want to kind of go through obviously just a little bit now being on the water constantly and things kind of going on um, big fish have kind of arrived here bro Uh, yeah
2: dude, I'm sick and tired of seeing your posts. I'm like, um, here I am playing with dinker Smallmouth. You guys are killing the big girls.
1: Yeah. So today, well, the new moon is tomorrow the 10th. Oh yeah. So things are going to start to pump in. Things will definitely get better. We've gotten some big fish. Our biggest one right now is 41 pounds. Um, great fish. We got a bunch of handfuls of them. Things have been kind of crazy and good and awesome. Um, Looking really forward to it. Do, you know what we saw today, which is kind of crazy. And I, I saw your post, you might,
2: dude, and I was like, that is so awesome.
1: Um, Some of the things that might come in that are even better is um, we saw Bluefin Tuna today inside the Sound. Really? Yeah. And the Mackerel are around, which showed up, so this will be year number three. And when they show up, then the Threshers show up. So, like everything's kind of molding and it's right on time to probably chalk up to probably going to be another epic season, honestly. So, the big Sweet. fish are here. The blue fish have shown up. The blue fin tuna were inside the sound today. The mackerel. So, things are things are fixing up to be a, a really good season. Now, are those the Spanish max that you guys get up there? No, we get Chub max. Okay. So, yeah. it's just, I mean, this is Chubs. We do get Spanishes, but Spanishes don't show up until the fall. Gotcha. So. I just asked, last time
2: I was in the Chesapeake, we were out there chasing mm-hmm. stripe and ended up on Spanish Macs. Totally worth it, man. So, oh yeah, dude, that was incredible.
1: I caught my first Spanish Mac and first time ever seeing them here uh, was three years ago. Isn't that
2: a cool fish?
1: It is a really cool fish and a hard fighting fish at that. Yeah. Um, I,
2: I was actually shocked. He's like, oh, we got a macro, let's hit them. I'm like, Pff we're, we're out here doing the big fish and you want to go after He's like, no, trust me. Mm. That that was, that was a good
1: time. One of my, um, one of my like bucket list fish is, is a uh, King max. Yes. I want a King so bad. Like it, that's like one of the things I do it up
2: North and cool looking fish. Mm-hmm. But it, if you haven't seen them, look them up the colorations on them are just, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It really, it's like, you would not expect that on a mackerel.
1: You want to hear something really wild uh yesterday offshore cuz there's been a lot of tuna south of block Island not far maybe like 5 miles maybe a right. little bit more in reach in reach like really in reach and yesterday the coast guard got called because um a, a guy uh hit a whale or a whale hit him and put a hole in them in no the boat kidding. it was sinking which is not like a normal thing. So when we get into a pot of of whales, we just drive up near them and they don't do nothing. They're afraid of the boat, right? Like you don't really. There's like a one-off. Like you don't really hear about whales and boats colliding. Well, it happened and it almost sunk. Wow, pretty That's crazy, insane, right? dude? Yeah, I thought it was pretty nuts. So we were all talking about it at the dock as a guy was coming in from the shore and uh, from offshore. I said, "How'd you do?" He said, "Good. Got our got our bluefin." I was like, "Oh." You didn't hit no uh, whales, did you? And he's like, no, but, but I did see the coasties come in to help out the guy that was sinking in his uh, giant boat. Oh, that's insane. Pretty cool.
2: Yeah, pretty nutty. So, you, know, you never know out there.
1: No, you never know. I mean, it's the same as Africa. You never know what's going to happen,
2: <laughs> as you'll hear in this show.
1: <laughs> that's right, man. Well, for, I just I want to go into one thing. We did um, release this week, the beginning of this week. Uh, a couple of days ago, the Outdoor Drive Series Grunt Tube by Nor'Easter Game Calls. If you guys haven't gone over there, nor'eastergamecalls.com, check them out, get them in close. Uh, we did a Fox Elderboro um, uh, t- what, mouthpiece, I guess you would call Barrel. it. Barrel. Barrel. Um, and then it's Hungarian Rosewood? Yes. Hungarian Rosewood uh tube on it with uh the thumb tab is also in ro- uh rosewood and uh they are badass man they they're made in house um all the uh soundboards and um reeds are all cut in in shop now 100% fully 100% custom not only with them being custom but they're also lifetime guaranteed if you don't like them you don't like the way they sound they are guaranteed. So, get on meaning. over to Nor'Easter Game Calls. Hmm? I was going to say meaning 30 years from now, something happens, send it back. That's right. So, get on over there. Um, They are your custom game call company. And there's nothing better than them, honestly. And going along with it, if you don't like the Fox Elderboro, the stained um, Fox Elderboro, there's also still the Evolution Series. Some with pine cones in them, some with Shadowgrass, whatever they're over there. So you want to get them, kind of play around with them before season. But pretty cool, pretty awesome.
2: Definitely, he did a great job.
1: yeah I did. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. I mean, these things are killer. One of the things with them, and when we talk about the thumb tab, a lot of you guys might not or haven't seen them. Um, you can go from a swamp bug, <laughs> right to a bleed. In no time at all. The old ones you'd have to take, and you'd have to take the whole barrel right off the thing and then change it and then put it back on. With this, it's just right on your thumb. So go check them out. Noise your Game Calls. They have some amazing ones over there. Also, Gator Outdoors, gatoroutdoors.com. Use the promo code Drive 25
2: Y'all, that's 25% off your entire order, if you didn't realize. Yep. Not per product, not per line item. That's 25% off your entire order.
1: Mm-hmm. And they still have the kill caps. If you guys don't know about them, those are awesome. Take a picture with you holding one of your kills for the season, send it into to Wade or the guys over at Gator Outdoors, and he will send you a kill T-shirt, which is probably one of the, that is
2: the coolest
1: kill T-shirts ever. So in 2020, 2019... This is 21, 2019. He had one I killed in 2019, which I thought was pretty cool. 20 was a pretty it was all right. It was a good it was a good one. 2021 is probably the best so far.
2: And you can't buy it unless you buy the cap. That's in right. which case you don't buy it, you just get it.
1: That's right. So for 20 bucks, you get a hat and a t-shirt, right? All you gotta do is kill something and take a picture. So go and get check them out, gatoroutdoors.com. Also, uh latitude outdoors dot com they are the method two saddles and then they have the classic which is a one piece the method two is a two-piece two-panel saddle probably the most comfortable saddle that i've ever sat in and the most user-friendly
2: versatile out-of-the-box saddle ready to hunt you don't need pieces and parts other than your tethers and they're
1: quiet it's, yeah. it doesn't it, it just doesn't make sense right like i've been in probably five six different saddles this two-piece i'll never hunt out of a one-piece again not for my all-day sets
2: no no for all day dude uh uh-uh. the back support in these things that adjustability and the ability to cinch down where your bridge is tied in on your loops is is game-changing Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you don't lift it and then you sit down and it seats back. It's once you set it where it's comfortable, it locks in with the double prusik knot. It's insane. It literally answered every problem I
1: have. And one of the things that we've kind of had problems with, right. And especially being a bigger dude and no, no, butt, was the walking (laughs) in with the saddle on. I've always had a problem with that. With this saddle with the rope uh, as the belt, and it just locks right to you. It, you don't have to worry about nothing. It just doesn't make it really, honestly, it, it checks every single box. If you, you don't had need a list the leg
2: straps a- walking in Mm-mm. the magnetic pool piece, you don't oh, have that diaper. Feel as about You're that. walking in. I mean, literally as you, as you go in, you feel like you have a, a light version of a weightlifters belt around the back. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just, there and it's comfortable. It doesn't slide because there's no metal clasps. It's literally a tension knot holding your belt so it won't open up and fall down on you. And when you get to the tree, put your leg straps on and climb. Silent, deadly, smooth. That's how I like it.
1: The other thing is, they make them a fat kid.
2: <laughs> I wonder if we can get them pr- to promote that size.
1: I mean, this is the deal, right? So a lot of us hunters, right? We like to drink beer. And I mean, we gain weight, right? I mean, like that's just the way that it is. That's us outdoorsmen, fat, lazy, hunting guys. Well, guess what? We make an XL now. So get on over there. So get on over there, latitudeoutdoors.com. Check them out. Check out the videos. We have one on YouTube, our YouTube page, Outdoor Drive Podcast on YouTube. Uh, Steven did a phenomenal job going over the features, uh, the pluses. And the minuses of the method two. Um, and the classic, we should have a video on that one coming up soon.
2: Yeah. I'm gonna do a, a comparison of the classic versus, uh, let's see, which one am I gonna use for the comparison? I, th- I think I'll probably use the Arrow Flex as a comparison. Mm.
1: That's a good flex. That's it's, a good one.
2: Just because that's the closest as far right. as comfort and features, because really mm-hmm. no other one piece has the features so I think I'm going to go that route and use those two and post that
1: absolutely timber uh, Timbertumblers.com. they are your custom tumblers anything you could possibly think about your logo our logo it doesn't really matter put it on the tumbler pretty cool yeti non yeti you want bowls shot glasses you name it he makes it he's got some really cool things up and coming go and check them out TimberTumblers.com. Also, out on the limb, out on the limb, mfg.com. They are the leader in awesome stuff. They make the hush tree stand, uh, saddle platforms, the ridge runner, the podium, the uh, Shakar sticks. If you haven't seen those, those are the best sticks on the market, hands down. No questions asked. I don't really care what anyone says. Also, the um, his camera, camera arms,
2: arms needs. Whether you want to go with a heavy camera arm or a light camera arm, he's got multiple options. The overhead 360 camera arm, which if I end up sitting in a a stand behind Trev, that's the one I want to run. Mm -hmm. Um, Solo filming, you've got everything down to the reach, which is extremely light and portable. I mean, it's just, you can't go wrong.
1: Nope. Nope. All made in USA. Those are the guys. Those are friends. And if you haven't already, go out and check out uh, New Era Archery. I mean, it's almost broadhead season. Can't forget about the Zeus. So you want to cut the Zeus loose this season. If you guys haven't checked those out, um, you may you may hear them boys over here on the podcast coming up soon. So stay tuned to that. Go over there, check them boys out. For sure. Bom, bom, bom.
2: Wow. Well, brother. I hear something coming in. You want to do me a favor and crank that bad boy up? The old Salta man. The man with no
1: soul. The ginger himself.
2: (laughs) Micah Salta. Let him rip.
3: Hey, everyone. Mike here is some news for your crews. I'm going to start this one off with one that Trevor kind of mentioned last week. Uh, which is Sirius Archery Products has acquired Toughhead Broadheads, and some of this was due to the demand for the new Toughhead Evolution Series. Uh, Toughhead and manufacturing will remain in Western PA, while distribution and customer service will move to Sirius Archery's main facility in Northern Kentucky. Uh, I actually have Sirius Arrows and found that the company was great to work with, so I'm excited to see what comes out of this. Uh, They are planning on upping manufacturing and production um, here in the states, as well as getting into some more of the international marketing, so curious to see what comes out of this. So now on to Alaska, where the state wants to know if you spot mule deer. Uh, The non-native mule deer have been expanding in population and range, so the Alaska Department of Fish and Game wants to monitor where they roam and if they bring uh, parasites and disease. The Department of Fish and Game wants to know if people harvest mule deer, uh, especially since 2019 regulation changes allow for year round hunting of them. So please report your harvest to Fish and Game uh, and they will do what they can to help hunters get samples uh, to the biologists. The biologists are interested in samples of the head, brain, heart, lungs, liver, hide, hooves, and feces of the mule deer. So if you've recently harvested a mule deer, please contact Fish and Game and try to get those samples in. Uh, Now for a couple of new records. Uh, First in Virginia, where a new state record archery goldfish. Uh, On May 22nd, Jeremy Fortner arrowed a three pound, nine ounce goldfish from Hunting Creek, a tributary to the Potomac River. The fish measured 16 inches in length and 15 inches in girth. And this is actually the first goldfish submitted for recognition since the species was added to the state record program in 2020. Uh, So congratulations to Jeremy on not just a record, but the first record archery goldfish in Virginia. Uh, Now to Washington, where in late June, a state record tiger trout was pulled from Loon Lake. The 24.49 pound tiger trout caught by Kalen Peterson broke the previous record by a full six pounds. So congratulations to Kalen and enjoy your trophy. So now I just want to take a minute. I want to thank everyone that's been sending me news. Uh, Paul, Gene, Um, Caddy Cowboy And um, Tom Aglio Uh, I really appreciate you guys reaching out And sending me some stuff recently If I forgot anyone I apologize But uh, definitely keep the news coming It's really helpful Um, If you have any news to send to me Reach out on Facebook at Mike Salter Or through Instagram at Bearded underscore bow 121 And with that enjoy the rest of your ride
1: If you guys don't don't forget man Go over uh, Check out or send a personal message over to Mike Salter himself, get him some news, man, news for your crews, help this man out, you know, send out what, you know, he can't be in every place at every single moment. That, and, and
2: we really like the local aspects, you know, what's affecting Mm -hmm. you where you are nationwide. You know, sometimes we, everyone's covered the, the big things that's happening across the country, but we want to hear about what's affecting you locally, you know, game bills, things like, you know, Last year, we had the, the potential to get a, a Virginia Sunday hunt passed, and it got shot down because of how late they put that out. You know, things like that. Let us know. Kick it over. If you can't get it to him, get it to me or Trev. But uh, definitely share your news, anything you think that's important, even if you find a funny article that you want to kick over, man. Give him a hand. We appreciate it. Absolutely. I don't know about you, but uh, I think we need to take this thing back to the south. And by south, I'm talking a whole other
1: continent, you know. Yeah.
2: South Africa.
1: I'm in it, man. Let's do this. Let's get this drive underway.
2: For sure, man. Let's crank the key. Nice
0: shot. Here comes a shooter. Shooter. Big buckler.
1: Stack, stack, stack. right we're back on the phone with philip glass from uh from texas how are you man i'm doing great how are you guys we're doing well man we really appreciate you taking the time to kind of join us on this i know you've been kind of busy you got a lot of things going on um, before you get off on your big trip
4: absolutely i'm i'm a couple weeks away from heading to south africa on another safari uh with a group of guys that i've put together and as a as a rancher here in here in West Texas, you know, leaving the ranch for any period of time like that is uh, take some planning and some logistics to make sure everything's taken care of. Uh, I have one employee that works here, thank goodness. And my lovely wife will be here also to see about things. So um, getting all the things organized so that I can leave and, and really uh, get overseas and decompress. And if something does go wrong, you know what, there's nothing I can do about
1: it right that's right yeah. <laughs> then you're over there and yeah. it is what it is right
4: <laughs> that's that's exactly right that's one of the great things about traveling overseas but but yeah it's it's a busy time we've been so blessed and so fortunate we've got good rain in west texas it's raining as we speak and so things are doing well that should bode well for our our whitetail deer and our other other exotics coming up for this fall hunting season so uh yeah just really a fantastic summer that we're having here in west texas
1: That's awesome, man. When did they open up the borders to be able to go over to Africa?
4: You know, um, last year, um, of course, things were completely crazy. And Tanzania was the first country to open up. Some people went there, mostly people who'd already planned to go there. But um, there's a couple of airlines that never stopped flying. Ethiopian and Qatar kept going to all these different places. Um, There was some closures, but believe it or not, there's been more time open than closed. It's just most people felt like the logistics were too much. Um, but honestly in the last um, almost a year now, nothing's really changed. You were required to take a test and wear a silly mask on the airplane. But other than that, um, we don't, uh, see much changing. You hear a lot of bad news. Oh, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of bad news over there. Um, but that's not going to face us. We, we are keeping up with all the developments, but, um uh, Mostly, it's just, it's just press, just like over here, what we dealt with last year, a lot of, a lot of press over things, which are difficult to deal with, but uh, no, we're, we're going forward, and so there's been people hunting. Um, certainly, last fall, it really got busy over there again, um, but that's off-season, so not a lot of people want to go to Africa in the summer, so they're not missing their own hunting season, so that is, there's a lot of reasons why our summer is their busy hunting time. It's, it's cool in Southern Africa. And so it's kind of like our hunting weather here. So we like that kids are out of school. If you're going to take a family, obviously that's another thing. Um, and then a lot of guys, they don't want to go to Africa in the fall. They don't want to mess out on the deer hunting and Turkey hunting and dove hunting and all the different things that, uh, that we love to do here at home. So, um, but yes, there's been folks going and it's, it's, of course, this, since I would say probably March, It's kicked into overdrive. Quite a lot of people are going.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good thing to hear, especially for the businesses over there and everybody kind of back up and doing their thing and making money and kind of getting things going. That's definitely awesome. Um, I want to take it back one quick second. Why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and uh, a little bit about what you do.
4: Absolutely. Um, My name's Philip Glass. I'm born and raised, Texas, rancher here in West Texas. I live near a little town called Water Valley. Basically, just a little bit northwest of San Angelo. I grew up in the hunting world um, from the time I, you know, you get around some of these guys and they say, When did you start hunting? And they have these conversations. And I, I don't uh, play into that conversation very well because I don't remember when I started hunting. I started hunting with my family. When That's I a was good middle. answer. <laughs> um, we're fortunate to be in a ranching family. So we've always had places to hunt. I grew up on the, on the river. Uh, in sterling city able to go anytime and grab a gun or a bow and just go down and, uh, right there in the woods and and have a good time there. But, uh, but yeah, I live here. Uh, my wife, Jennifer and I have three children and, um, they've all traveled overseas. Both of the boys have been with me to Africa. And of course my daughters uh, badgering me to take her. And of course I've sent her to a lot of foreign countries on different trips as well, but, uh, but not, she hadn't quite made it to Africa yet. So she's married now. So she and her husband may have to go with me, but, um, but yeah, born and raised rancher here. I'm one of my interesting things about me is um, when I was young, I was about 25 or so in 1997, I went to South Africa on a safari with some friends. And at that time, not only did I fall in love with Africa, but I was in the Eastern Cape and was exposed to the Dorper sheep, which is a meat sheep, not a wool sheep that was uh, um, created in in Southern Africa there and uh, came home and thought, man, this is, this is the thing. This is something we can produce. It's hardy. It's from Africa. And so long story short, the Dorper sheep was a exotic rarity back in the nineties. And I got started with it and I got a lot of people gave me trouble for that. You know, this is wool sheep country here in Texas. And, and I thought, no, this sheep has a place. It's, it's easy to raise. It's hardy because it comes from Africa and produces excellent lamb um, and does so very efficiently and now fast forward to today and it's the number one breed of sheep in Texas and Texas is the largest sheep producing state in the nation so so my love of Dorper sheep and safari hunting all started when I was young and uh, I have gotten the opportunity to travel all over the world and hunt but uh but yeah my family hunts with me and we're very involved in in our our school and our our local church and things here and here in our community, so there's a lot of different hats that my wife and I both wear, and and I love um, spending time with people, or whatever the setting may be. You know,
1: absolutely, that's crazy though. So you keep yourself pretty busy and always doing something, and have your hands in, in something going on.
4: I do. I've been I've been involved, and in, I mentioned the Dorper Sheep. I was president mm-hmm. of that uh, organization, helped build it up over many years, and and it's it's huge now, and the business is just booming. I've served on the board of the exotic wildlife association. I've, I've loved raising exotics here at the ranch. Um, ever since I was just, a, just right out of high school, started raising a few exotics and have continued on and love that now as I have more, more property, uh, now to hunt on and, and more exotics. And, and, um, you know, at one point I had a kind of a menagerie. I kind of wanted to try different things and I bought all different animals and raised them and learned about them and asked questions of people and, and that was fun. That was a good experience. But I've, I've dialed it back to where I'm just breeding reputation herds of animals, um, and um, and kept keeping it very simple. Where I just have three or four species that do well on this ranch. You know, basically in semi wild conditions and big big pastures, big country, and um, have enjoyed that. But so I've served in in different capacities like that in the industry, and now I'm I'm on the. I'm on my local Safari Club chapter board. Our Angelo chapter is a very um, top-notch chapter. We were the number two chapter in the world last year in terms of fundraising, that's how we rank our chapters. And we've always been top 10. And for a city of uh, 90, 100,000 people, that's pretty remarkable when you compare it to the world. There could be a chapter in any, name the big city, fill in the blank. And we're competing with them. And now I'm serving as vice president of our chapter. And we're very active with our local community here. Lo- uh, love what we're doing. We do a big fundraiser, like most chapters do. We raise money for SCI. We raise money for local, for H uh, clubs, shooting programs. Uh, we even do some unaffiliated, non-hunting um, um, donations that are really uh, fun. Fun to get to be in that charitable. Uh, position to be able to work with these donations. So that's been, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, Texas youth hunting program, all those kind of things we fund every year with the work we do. So I've spent a lot of time really have enjoyed, uh, being a part of SCI and have been for a long time, but I wasn't so active as I am these last half a dozen years or so. And, uh, uh boy, it's been a lot of fun. We've got a, one of our chapter trainings, um, me and one of the other guys are going to, um, uh, coming up pretty soon this, this weekend. So I've got that to do in addition to getting ready to go to Africa. So, uh, being part of SCI has been a a wonderful thing for me. I'm really passionate about it because I've seen, I've seen what we, what we do and the effect we have, And you know, with SCI being the big, the big dog, you know, the big organization, you know, a lot of people criticize them for different things because they're so big. Um, and maybe some criticism is warranted um, but for the most part, SCI is very, uh, responsive to its members, uh, very active in fighting for our hunting rights in so many different facets, you know, from local things to state level, to federal level. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about SCI and want to, want to just continue to, um, get more guys to be members, you know, come to our banquet. Our banquet's such a fun event and anywhere around the country, you can find an SCI banquet and just a good time to visit with like-minded hunters and uh, possibly buy a hunt and, and just have a good time. So there's a lot of different uh, organizations that I have uh, been a part of and been, been active with. And, and right now at this point in my life, I'm, I've cut back on the, the livestock side of, of, uh, of that sort of thing and, and more, spending more time now on the hunting side as far as my volunteer work.
1: That's incredible. And, and so what, what made you get involved with SCI? and the groups that you're with.
4: You know, I think that what really got me introduced to SCI was just wanting to go to the convention, just wanting to go to that convention and meet all these outfitters from around the world. You know, it is quite a spectacle. And so probably it was just kind of like, well, I'm a member of a hunting organization and I want to go to the big convention and check it all out. And, uh, it just it'll just blow your mind and then when you see um some of the things that are going on attend some of the banquets and and hear from some of the folks that are running things um it's just a real eye-opener i think that was one of my one of the things that happened to me was just going to convention and um attending a couple of the banquets and meetings and seeing who was doing what and and the scale of it the scale of it was was pretty amazing and so uh of course, it's just fun, too. You know, you've been at commis- convention and, uh, you know, missing the one this year was, man, that was a heartbreaker. But, you know, being at convention, um, it will be in January in Las Vegas. And, I, man, we're just counting the days down. It's just so much fun. You meet so many people. You see so many people you know. You get the chance to just walk through this. I mean, it's just like a – it's silly, but it's like a kid in a candy store. I mean, there's just so many hunting and fishing trips from around the world that – You'll run across something you've never even heard of or seen about some country you've never thought about hunting in, and uh, that's just some of the fun of it. So you've got the fun of convention, and then you've got the serious side of the work that's being done. So when all that kind of uh, came together for me, and then uh, probably to add to, your, to answering your question a little more properly, when we did form our local chapter, that was probably one of the catalysts for me being more involved in SEI um, having a local chapter, which we've only had our local chapter for, I want to say like seven years. So it hasn't been that long. And so once we had our local chapter, then I think a lot of us think it spurred us on to be more active and, and, uh, do more and attend more and learn more about all the things that are going on with SCI. And
1: is that kind of what took you to being part of the movie trophy?
4: Yes and no. Um, Yes, and the fact that the filmmakers came to convention to film and to learn about the industry, they were interested in putting together their documentary about sustainable utilization and how that relates to hunting and the different facets of it. They didn't really understand all of it when they got started. They just knew they kind of had a storyline that they wanted to work with. And so I actually didn't meet them there, but they met one of my professional hunters And when they heard, um, from the filmmakers, what their ideas were, they said that, um, they really needed to meet me, that they, they should meet me simply because I was on the quest for the big five. And I was very outspoken about hunting and conservation. I -hmm. could, I could speak to all these issues, um, and, and do it, um, without, you know, without hesitation, whether there's a camera there or not. Mm -hmm. And so, um, some months after convention, they contacted me and asked me if I would let the film crew go with me. We were going to go to Namibia. We're going to the Caprivi Strip to hunt buffalo and the elephant. And, uh, I just naively, of course said, sure. And then I thought, man, going on the elephant hunt and got extra people walking behind you. I don't know if that's such a good idea, but nonetheless, I said, yes. Um, if there's a story about conservation in there, I want to be a part of it. If I get the chance to speak about hunting and conservation, I'll go there, whatever, however far I have to stick my neck out. And so that's what I did. I just invited them. I met them literally on a domestic flight in Namibia. I'd never met them before, and uh, you know, we were in a you know rustic tent camp in the Caprivi Strip, and we got just kind of hit it off and became friends. And and it was more about uh, more than just filming in the daytime. It was about sitting around the campfire at night getting to know each other. And so telling, I was telling them stories. They wound up filming some stories around the campfire because that's how they were getting to know me and trying to figure out how my story could fit in with what they're wanting to do. And of course, a, a true documentary is, there may be an outline, but it's, it's truly organic. There's gotta be a storyline that just evolves or you're just directing a script. And that's not what a documentary is. It's not a script. It is real life. And so there were some very interesting things that happened along the way, and I'll try to just hit some of the highlights. Um, but to go back to your question, yes and no. It was due to convention. If they hadn't come to convention and made a networking with some of the people I knew, I would never have met up with them. Um, so I went with them. We kind of hit it off. We filmed part of filmed this hunt, and then, uh, you know, they're still creative you know, minds working, trying to figure out what the next step is. And so I told him, I said, well, I have a lion hunt coming up. And I also have just my normal Texas hunting with my family. If you'd like to come film me. And so they thought it over and they came and, and, and filmed with me at the ranch hunting with my kids. Um, and as I said before, we just kind of became friends and, um, I trusted them, uh, about what they said they were going to do with the film And of course, everybody said I was crazy. You got two New Yorkers following you with two cameras, um, (laughs) just waiting for something to go wrong, you know. I I said, you know, again, I'm going back to what I said in the beginning. If I have a chance to speak for hunting and conservation, I don't care who throws rocks at me. I really don't. Um, I just want that opportunity. If I can do that, it helps all of us. And so we continued on. I invited them to come on the lion hunt in Zimbabwe, and that was really epic. Um, the lead up to it was epic talking about an organic story that just evolves. You know, they were here at my house on my birthday in December, um, of that year. Um, filming me hunting with my kids right when U S fish and wildlife dropped the press release saying the line was put on the threatened list and would require a permit, which of course they could approve or deny. And here with the cameras rolling, I had to make the des- decision. Am I going to call the outfitter in Zimbabwe and tell him we're going to put this off because I'm too unsure? I, that's, too, that's a lifetime hunt. That's a super expensive hunt, a wild lion. Am I going to just roll the dice so that I can get the lion home? And so I had to think about it. But honestly, um, about 10 minutes and I said, no, I'm going on the lion hunt, regardless <laughs> of what happens to the skin and the skull. Um, I just can't be bothered by this. This is the, the pinnacle of hunting for me, was a, a true wild lion in Zimbabwe, and so I'm going. And so we just made a decision, we're going, they made their plans and they met me there along the way. And um, that was kind of the, uh, the, the time when the film really started coming together. When I really saw the sparkle in their eyes that they had gotten some content, that really made a story. And they told me when they got ready to leave, they said, you know, thank you for letting us tell your story. Because at that point in time, they had put all this together. They had put uh, Namibia and Texas and Zimbabwe, and also filming me extensively at convention, which then after the Cease of the Line thing, then there was a lot of pushback and they wouldn't let the cameras come in the convention anymore, even though they had been in there the previous two years. And so I had all that to deal with. and. We just filmed around the edge. Uh, They filmed me debating protesters, as I'm sure you saw. That was um, aggravating, kind of like hitting your head against the wall. Um, But we try. We try to speak to these people. Uh, Some of them are beyond help. But, uh, again, if we get the chance to speak for hunting and conservation, we want to do that. But, yeah, when we finished, they, uh, they told me they had the story they wanted. They had the story of a hunter that fit in with basically John Hume, the rhino breeder, and some of the other side stories that they had put together, um, they finally had something that kind of glued it together. So if my story hadn't been in there, it just wouldn't have quite fit. And so then I went on, they went on, ed- did the editing, got it ready by the end of that year. We went up to New York City to see it uh, privately screened, just to see the, the final cut. And we were happy with some parts. And of course, the other parts that involved other hunters, of course, we didn't like and other things they put in there. I didn't like the Teddy Roosevelt part and all that. I didn't think it fit, but, but that's the artistic side of things that they felt that they needed to do. I went on CNN, I was interviewed on CNN and the big uh, final hoorah for me was uh, debating uh, on CNN. I debated the CEO of Born for USA um, and uh, right there in New York City. And uh, quite honestly, I, I got the better of him. I really uh, was totally prepared Um, I just, I just had my, my story down and had my facts straight and I just let the guy have it. And, uh, he really couldn't, um, he couldn't stand up with what I had to say because I, I shared the truth and I shared it from, from my heart and from the facts that we know to be true. It was on Chris Cuomo show and, uh, the poor guy was just left, uh, pretty much speechless. And so I was, that was my, my big ending to being in trophy, the film. And then it went on to believe it or not, a year or so later, to win an Emmy. Um, and here's the funny story. I knew it was nominated. They sent me, I looked up the whole list of who was nominated. I didn't watch the award ceremony. I said, there's no way we're going to win. You were <laughs> up against National Geographic and PBS <laughs> with these really well-done nature documentaries in this category that they were in, you know. And I didn't find out until two days later. I had to go back and find the feed <laughs> and, and the video and watch it. And I'm like, and then everybody's asking me if I've got the trophy. I said, no, I am not didn't get any of that, but I sure did get the satisfaction that something we put together was truly special. Not just Mm -hmm. that one person said it was special, not just because it made an impact on people and started the conversation around hunting and conservation in groups of people, communities of people who would not have been approachable. They would have just been a brick wall, but they see this film and they kind of get more curiosity um, and there's not that brick wall anymore. And I'll tell you, that's the brilliance of the filmmakers because that's exactly what they told me when I first met them. Their goal was, when this is finished, with people on either side of the story, either side of hunting and conservation, right or left, when they watch the film, they want to get together and have a conversation. And that is exactly, we heard this verbatim from uh, people in person, movie reviewers writing their online reviews. We heard them all say this exact same thing. And one time I was sitting there, with my iPad and I showed my wife, I said, this verbatim from a a movie reviewer, I said, do you remember what Christina and Shaul told us in the beginning? This guy, it's the exact same words. And so there's some brilliance there of the plan that they had and how it did bring people together and, and people to talk about hunting and conservation. I went on to have continued to get the chance to speak about hunting and conservation, which I will do anytime, anywhere. And, uh, and just love doing that, love sharing what is all of our passions and, and being able to, you know, to put it in, in the right terms where you can speak to somebody, whether they hunt or whether they don't. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm proudest of is just the conversation, the chance to, to change a few minds, open some minds. Maybe they're not completely convinced, but, but you planted a seed, you know, you planted a seed where there can be another conversation in the future and, um, and, I'm just, I'm just pleased about that. I've still got people that say, you're still crazy. I can't believe you let the New York city cameras follow you all over the world. I said, well, it worked out.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. especially with something like that, I think that there's a lot of people that they're not really against hunting or for hunting. I think that they're just uneducated in, in the fact. So I think something like this with you going out on that limb for all of us was a very good thing, honestly, because you kind of put in the perspective and educated a lot of people what really happens. And I like trophy hunting is one thing and so on and so forth. And people have a different outlook on it. Right. And I think what you did was a very positive thing and shed some light on some really serious things that a lot of people probably would never sit down in a room with me, you or Steven and say, let's have a conversation about it. And when it was put in that type of perspective with the documentation that they didn't really have a choice. Right. And they, they educated themselves because curiosity killed the cat. Mm-hmm. I think it's just an amazing thing. And I, you know, I constantly always reminded, I mean, having friends and family that are over in South Africa and a lot of them don't really understand. I mean, a lot of my friends here don't really understand what's going on over there and talking with them and understanding and seeing what it's all about. I mean, I've sat in a room with a pH for days and just stories and just really like hearing all these things and where people stateside are like, Oh well, the zebra's endangered, or there's not this, or there's not that, or you know. And then you see these pictures and hear these stories, and there's thousands of them everywhere. And and they're trying to make laws here to change all those things, but they've really never been over there to see what's actually over there. And it's kind of it's foolish.
4: It's it's so true. There's so many misconceptions about hunting, and one of the things that's in the news right now um, that is the absolute prime example. Of how hunting uh, and conservation work together is the situation with the giraffe in Africa. It's one of the most dramatic examples. If you take it country by country and look at the population, current population and the population trend, there's a direct correlation um, between the increasing and/or stable population in the countries where um, hunting is allowed, commercial hunting is allowed. Versus the countries where there's no hunting. It's completely illegal. Those are the ones that are losing their giraffes. And it's a perfect example because for whatever reason, the giraffe has become this lightning rod thing that they wanted to put on the CITES 3, which is absurd. There's so many of them in places they have to do culling to keep the numbers down. One of the places I hunted a few years ago, the guy says, I got to kill 12 or 15 uh, two to three-year-olds just to keep this place in check. And it's open range. This isn't a fence place, just big country with too many giraffes. Um, So that is one of the perfect examples. And if we could just get more people to sit down with us and look at those numbers and say, look, there's a direct correlation. Hunting creates more animals, period. Banning hunting creates fewer animals, period. And I can go on and on and on for hours, whether it's North America, South Africa, Namibia, you you, you just name the country, uh, Tajikistan, the other one that's in the news now. The Markor uh, recovery is fantastic. All sheep and goats across Central Asia. Think about it. During the Soviet years, you shot them and ate them because you were starving. And since 1990, when hunting opened, sheep and goats across all of Central Asia have increased in number tremendously. Tajikistan is just the latest story that's in the news that is a successful community-based hunting program. But it's, it's widespread. And, you know, here's the funniest thing that nobody ever talks about, whether they're in the hunting business, whether they're these big time riders or anything else, nobody talks about the recovery of the snow leopard. The recovery of the snow leopard is directly due to hunting, uh, increasing the numbers of wild sheep and goats, which are their prey base across all of Central Asia. And it's a fantastic story. And I wish people would tell it because it's hunting hunters, foreign hunters dollars coming into Central Asia that have increased the numbers of snow leopards so much so that most hunters are seeing them or seeing their sign. I saw their sign, I saw a kill, a fresh kill, a day old kill when I was in Kyrgyzstan a few years ago. It's a wonderful success story. It's one that anybody can embrace because everybody thinks the snow leopard's the coolest animal. And uh, hunting is is where the credit is due.
1: Absolutely. And you know, you brought up a very valid point where conservation dollars in those countries are huge south africa is one of them where people go over there and they buy you know like you you taking the lion that money went to 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 huge to help out the people of the tribes of of the area the food the i mean the americans bring a lot of stuff and not even only americans but other people that travel there to hunt like it's huge people don't realize it and they try and ban things like you know like my local area, they're trying to ban the, the the importation of the of the big six. And that's stopping a lot of people of going over there and hunting, which then takes away the money from the country takes away the food from the tribesmen takes away. I mean, you're really affecting a lot of things. Those people rely on us being there. It's not, I mean, here, it's little like maybe us coming down and hunting in Texas and buying a license. Right. I mean, it's, and then you're putting money into that economy and so forth, so forth. But when you do it overseas or somewhere that doesn't have a lot of money, you're putting a lot of money back into that country and, and keeping it afloat and you're feeding a lot of mouths that, that don't have anything.
4: Mm -hmm. And Zimbabwe is one of those locations where they started many years ago with the campfire program, which is a program on on government land where people do live there and uh, those people share in the success of the hunting. You know, they share financially and they share in the meat. Um, In fact, the meat is their property. Um, Same thing in Namibia and the different uh, conservancies there. It's a brilliant system and it works very well. And that money um, that's one of the, that was one of the subjects that came up, uh, when I was in, in the debate on CNN, cause the guy was trying to claim that only 3% of the money ever really trickles down to conservation. And I just popped off and told him, I said, the, the people I hunted with in Zimbabwe said fully 50% of the lion money was stayed right there in that community. 50% of it right there, not their big government, not marketing, not this guy, that guy, 50% of it stayed right there. That's a lot of money from one hunt.
1: And you're not the only one that goes there and does that.
4: Exactly. It's a good program. Those, those countries have it figured out. They have a program that works. You know, we have different hunting models around the country, um, but we can show success through all of them in, in different ways, whether it's North America, whether it's Africa, like I said, the campfire program in Zimbabwe was the first one of that kind where have a really organized, um, effort there with the local villagers to incentivize them to not poach and to take ownership of their, their land, their wonderful resources, to take ownership of that and get paid uh, and, and share in that. And the success of that, is, it's, that's, that story's been told over and over. The success has been fantastic. We need Americans, like you're talking about in Connecticut, Washington, D.C., we need them to just leave us alone mm-hmm. and let this system work because it does work.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you, you just, you just struck a chord, honestly, because you talked about poachers, anti poaching, the the stuff that goes on in some of these countries is absolutely huge because of people going over there and hunting. I mean, you are stopping the killing of a lot of things. I mean, with the trapping, I mean, a lot of those people don't understand how they do the anti poaching. I mean, the, the, the poaching with them taking and they they take these traps and they put them out and then the animals get in them and then they starve and that's how they find them because they can't get to water or food because they have anchors on their feet and then they chase them around with these these <laughs> old rifles from God knows when you know and they just I mean it's it's a it's a huge circle and and we help that stuff I mean they're killing. They're, and they're killing the rhinos. I mean, when we, Americans and all these other people and the conservationists go over there and cut off you know, the, the rhino horns and the, everything else, I mean, they're stopping a lot of things that are happening that are bad for these animals. And us as hunters and conservation are over there saving all these things from happening.
4: And one of the most dramatic examples of um, the poaching uh, taking over is the country of Kenya. Uh, Kenya sometime in the 70s banned hunting. Um, You know, they were a a prime East African safari destination back that, back during that time. I mean, uh, a place you could hunt the big five. I mean, there was plenty of rhinos back then. They banned hunting in the late seventies and they lost uh, 80 or 90% of their wildlife. I've forgotten the exact statistic, but basically what that means is there is no wildlife in Kenya, except in the national parks. Every bit of the rest of it has been poached out. It's all gone. It's just cattle, just cattle and people. And that's, that's fine. But there needs to be certain areas that are protected and hunting does that. But they, they banned it and they lost all of their wildlife. Nobody tells that story outside of our circles because people go to Kenya and go to see the great migration, which of course goes into Tanzania and is assisted by Tanzania who's a very well managed country with hunting has huge animal numbers kenya lost all their animals the only anim- the only wildlife they have left is in the national parks statistically speaking and so um there's just story after story that hunting uh, increases the number of animals whatever the country whatever the situation mm-hmm. kenya is one of our most dramatic examples of a truly sad tragic situation where l- wildlife was decimated and is to this day
1: That's nuts. I didn't even know that. That's an amazing thing to hear about, honestly. And and a lot of people, another thing that they don't kind of understand and some of the things that I've learned was like some of the animals that we do take get kicked out, like especially lions, for example, you're taking the mature animals that have been kicked out of the pride and that are now leaving you know and going out on their own i mean you're not it's not like you're taking the young ones you're hunting for mature animals that have been kicked out of the pride or kicked out of the herd or so on and so forth it's not like you're going in and decimating these things you're doing it right and you're taking the proper animals and people just don't understand that
4: and the lion is a perfect example because that is the one where we get the most criticism from the very educated uh, animal rights animal welfare side of things because they all tell the story when you shoot a a male lion then the another lion comes in and kills all the cubs from the pride yeah that's true that's what happens but we don't hunt those lions we don't hunt pride males we hunt old males that are kicked out mine was seven years old i don't know where the lo- the, the pride was he had been in or out of or or what but mine was a single solitary male which is what we hunt mm-hmm. nobody wants to to be in that situation where you've that kind of problem, which it is a problem and I'm sure it could happen from time to time. But with the, with the right people like we have nowadays and uh, working towards conservation, working towards the good, we're all looking for those older animals. And when you start dealing with these antis, it just drives me crazy because I just have to boil it down to them say, hey guys, we hunt these older males. You're talking about, maybe you're talking about a population that's vulnerable, say rhino or something. And I said, guys, boys don't have babies. And you only need so many males to breed uh, a herd of animals. And so what do you used to do with those? They think it's a zero-sum game, and it's not. If you have 100 animals and you shoot one, you don't have 99. you got 40 or 50 babies coming. Whether they're coming now or coming in a few months, they're coming. It's not a zero-sum game. And those people don't understand that, and some of them you can't get through to. Um, But I wish they knew that. But that kind of leads into the the rhino story. You know, I I learned a lot about rhinos over the years, and especially being a part of trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much of that subject matter that we covered, and people we met, and and things that we learned. And I decided I was going to finish the big five and the dangerous seven, and I was going to hunt a rhino. And there's so many of them that have the horn sawed to keep the poachers out. You know, this one. Place they say, there'll be signs saying with the horn sawed off, trying to show the poachers, hey, there's no horns on this property. That there's a lot of those, so there's a lot of opportunities to hunt those. And uh, you're engaging in conservation. Everybody, even some hunters, give me trouble and said, oh, I just couldn't shoot a rhino. I said, that's that's your choice, and and uh, and you know that's everybody has to find what what the right hunt for them is. Um, but you have to understand if you engage in a sawed horn rhino hunt today you're injecting money directly into conservation. You're directly helping that guy who does have a herd of rhinos that's taking really good care of them and increasing their numbers. And as you mentioned earlier, talking about the anti-poaching side of things, this guy has a team full-time on his payroll that are anti-poaching guys. If you own any rhinos, I don't care if you've got 20 of them or whether you have 200 of them or like John Hume, 2,000 of them, you've got a full-time private army, so to speak that's constantly watching the rhinos, watching the perimeters. It's very expensive. So anybody who does go and engage in a rhino hunt, or even the green hunt, even the darting hunt, you are putting money into that system and helping those people with their costs just to keep There's no other animal that you own that you have to have security for like that. Nothing like a rhino.
1: Absolutely. Why don't you take us into some of your hunts and kind of some of the animals that you have taken, kind of get out of the the politics of it and kind of tell us a little bit of some of the things that you've been through while you've been, you know, traveling and and taking some of these animals.
4: One of my one of my greatest adventures even to this day, uh, was actually hunting the mid-Asian Ibex in Kyrgyzstan. That was just such a uh, extreme place to go really a a stretch. Uh, that's another one of those that probably most people wouldn't go by themselves, (laughs) but I did. I'm that guy. Um, and, uh, didn't know anybody, didn't know anybody along the way, Russian booking agency and just went. Um, and I just the scenery. You were like up at 13,000 feet horseback every day. And just the scenery up there in those mountains was beautiful. And as I mentioned earlier, we saw a a snow leopard kill. Uh, We didn't get to see the snow leopard, we saw Marco Polo. We saw Ibex. I was able to be very fortunate. in one day, after really, really difficult hunting, to get a 48-inch Mid-Asian Ibex. And uh, just extreme wow. circumstances. I mean, that 13,000 feet, I was taking the, the high-altitude medicine, which makes you dehydrated. And then the guys didn't bring water for me. And, I mean, I got so dehydrated that day. It was miserable. But I did get my Ibex and – it was a real challenge climbing those mountains and getting up there. But that to this day, I think, because just just the sheer unknown of going somewhere in Asia like that by yourself, that's still to this day, one of my greatest adventures, but, um, my craziest hunting, well, I've got all kinds of crazy hunting stories. I'll tell you one. Um, I was hunting leopard in Namibia and, uh, we were driving back and it was kind of late from where we had gone. And, uh, I I was kind of dozing off and a vulture hit the window and smashed me in the face, cut me all to pieces. And everybody's like, boy, you're really an unlucky guy. The vultures (laughs) don't fly at night. I was like, I know that I live in Texas with all kinds of buzzards and two different kinds of buzzards and all of the kinds of birds of prey and whatever. I said, I know that. Why did the vulture hit me? I mean, I was in bad shape. I was bleeding. I probably needed stitches. Um, but toughed it out. So that's one of those crazy stories. It's the unexplained, you know, how did this happen? But my craziest hunting story is my leopard. Um, took me three safaris to get a leopard. Um, it was just, uh, you know, near misses, you know, just weren't in the right place at the right time. It's, it really is as hard as they say it is. And I'm, I'm sickened by the guys that get it on the first few days of the first safari, but that happens as well. Um, Anyway, third safari, Zimbabwe, decided to go on a hound hunt, which is really what I'd planned in the beginning. It just didn't work out. The timing didn't work out. Um, So we were on a hound hunt in Zimbabwe and not having a good go of it because the leopard we were after, the resident leopard um, that they knew about, was killed by hyenas a few weeks before I got there, which, as you know, with those cats, the territories are are very... uh, uh, They're they're very well defended. And when one old mature animal dies, the territories really are scrambled up. So it's difficult for us to find one. And it was the seventh day when we finally got, we never got to put the dogs out to the seventh day and we got after one. And uh, very uncharacteristic, he didn't come to a bait. He came near a bait, but he didn't come to it. Um, He didn't sleep up in the big mountains. He was very hungry. We found where he killed a dove. Um, we watched his tracks, um, st- followed his tracks all morning. Um, the track just went cold. He kept back. Tr- he was hungry. He would go a little ways and backtrack, go a little ways and backtrack to the main track. And we kept losing time. And I realized this thing was fixing to be over. We're fixing to pull the dogs off and, uh, and go back to camp or do something else. It was getting to be about noon. And I mean, the, the dogs would lose a track and the trackers would find a track and put the dogs back on it. And uh, the dogs would go for a little bit, and it would go cold again. And finally, a little afternoon, um, the dogs started getting a little louder. So I thought, well, maybe maybe we're getting close. And there was no big hills around like you would think. The cat would sleep up in some big hills um, in this particular area. And so he wound up being in some of the smaller hills. And uh, that's a moment I'll never forget. When the dogs went up the hill, and that, that cat roared at him and fought them and ran off. I mean, that that sound of that just guttural roar of a leopard, you know, it's just, uh, man, it, it'll give you chills. No matter if you're hearing it in person or recorded, it is something else. But in person, it's really something. So we sprinted. I mean, sprinted two or 300 yards to try to catch up with the dogs because the cat w- wouldn't tree. And you have to understand that area, there are some cattle and some cattle herders no residents, like a resident villagers or anything, just cattle herders. And it's mostly young boys. And they've all got some little cur dogs with them. And so those cats are used to being disturbed by people and dogs, being chased away from the cattle by some dogs. And so this cat just ran from them. And then he finally stopped and uh, was fighting them because they were staying. You know, Normally he would run, I would imagine, and the little herders dogs would give up. They'd chase him a little ways and they'd give up and go back to their cattle. And, um, so he ran a pretty long ways and we, we were huffing and puffing. When we got there, finally find him in a clearing where we can see him. Cause it's real brushy there in that area. And so we come out in the clearing and the pH says, there he is shooting. And so I'm, I'm ready, put my rifle up and no hesitation. And the cat comes on a full charge before I can shoot. And so he's, he's 35 yards, 40 yards away, maybe. It didn't take him long to cover that. And I shoot and I hit him and I go to reload and come to find out some rifles, when you work the bolt really hard under a stress situation, it doesn't eject the spent shell. I learned that the hard way.
2: Double feed. We're
4: my eyes off the cat. I, I go to close the bolt and obviously there's a problem. So obviously I don't have time to look at the gun. So I just come back and this is how fast it all happens from the time I fire open the bolt, realize there's a problem, come back and close the bolt. All of what I'm fixing to tell you all transpired. So in that period of time, the pH waits till the last second, shoots it. Come to find out I had shot it in the mouth. He shot it in the back of the head. Neither of us hit it, hit anything to stop him cold. The cat, we're standing shoulder to shoulder. I believe what I saw happen was him shoot and in a split second, try to get his rifle in a defensive position because the cat kind of swerved his way. I believe he moved after the shot. The shot may have attracted the cat, but we were literally shoulder to shoulder, not, the cat was coming for me. And at the last second before he leapt into the air, he jumped on my PH. So in that period of time, they fell to the ground, and that was, that was the period of time when my gun was finally loaded and I was ready to fire. So this all happened in a, just a few seconds. As um, Soon as they hit the ground, I shot the cat right behind the shoulder, and it was all over. But, of course, in that situation, I'm thinking, did I shoot? His arm is in the cat's mouth. I'm thinking, oh, crap. Did I shoot far enough away from my pH? I just shot instinctively just behind the shoulder. Don't try anything funny. But I'm still thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, gosh. (laughs) And in the meantime, thankfully, the cat expired quickly because the pH is grabbing for his 45. It's on his hip. And so his 45 is on his hip, and he's trying to get it, and he can't grab it. He's just panicked and I'm thankful he didn't grab it because he'd have been shooting right at me and it might've been a bad situation. So the cat's dead. Um, I'm really, really bummed. Not just about my pH being hurt, but I'm a, I've hunted my whole life and I got the opportunity to shoot that cat at my feet, even after not hitting him solidly enough the first time, even though I hit him in the mouth. I couldn't get the second shot off, and it was the most disgusting thing for a hunter in my position that could ever happen. I was so disappointed with myself, and I thought at the at that moment, I thought I short-stroked the bolt. I did what everybody does, and it took me a few months to figure out exactly what happened, and I recreated the malfunction to confirm what had happened, because so I'm like, no, I didn't short-stroke the bolt. I don't do that. I, I mean, I, I that just wouldn't be me. I wouldn't do that. And so it took me months to figure that out. Um, just the most disappointing thing uh, for me to have happen. The pH's left arm was bit badly, but not much else. One other little cut. It's bleeding, but it's vein blood. I can tell it's very slow. It wasn't arterial. We just get a shirt and wrap his arm up. And uh, he immediately says, no, you get that cat and get a picture with it. And I'm thinking, we're making sure you're not going to bleed to death. They're not worried about the cat. <laughs> it's
3: just, no, he is.
4: He's like, no, whatever happens from this point on, it's, you know, it's just too much work. You got to get that picture. And so um, normally there would be somebody helping you pick up that cat. But in the pressure of the moment, I just pick it up myself and I'm still from time to time my back hurts. You know, I'm supposed to do that by yourself. Anyway, I get the cat. We get some good pictures. Thank goodness. His main tracker is savvy with phones and cameras and so we get some shots we get him fixed up and then the saga just continues i mean just we cannot seem to get out of this nightmare the guys all the trackers and all the dog handlers i don't know how we had five or six seven people with us they all left us they took the cat and took his gun and took off the vehicle is two hours away walking and so we take off and we get going, and he's the pain starting to set in at this point. He's pissed. He's in pain. And he gives me his GPS and says, We're at waypoint number 10 or whatever, in case something happens to me. That's where the vehicle is. I'm like, Well, crap. I don't know how to run this GPS. I'm not familiar with this thing. So we start walking. It's Thornbush. He's getting scratched. Everything hurts. You know, at this point, everything hurts. And so we're going. And I've got a satellite phone. He won't let me call anybody. Of course, his trackers have already gotten on the hill and called everybody. I called my wife and tell her, we need some prayers. It's Sunday morning. We need some prayers, y'all. We're in a spot. And so we get back. We walk for two hours by ourselves back to the vehicle. And then they had taken his vehicle, his main Toyota pickup, to a vantage point to get cell phone service, which they were supposed to do. But they were supposed to take the old Land Cruiser. (laughs) <laughs> which is like a fifties or sixties model. Like you can hardly even drive. It's like driving a tractor. Right. So I get it. I get him in there. We struggle to find the keys. We find the keys. And then of course, you know, I'm shifting with the left hand with the clutch from the fifties. I mean, this thing is so old and the road, of course is rutted up and every bump I hit, he's just in pain. I mean, just in pain. And so I'm doing the best I can to get in there quickly without beating us all to death. And especially him, we finally get to his vehicle and he's like, um, I'm just thinking, man, Just we just got to send you out of here. Just go. And he's like, no, he gets some ibuprofen. He gets a Coke and a sandwich. And next thing you know, he's all better um, mentally. You know, he, the, okay. the pressure's off. He's, he's, he's past the stress of the situation, feeling a little bit better. And uh, he's like, no, let's go back to camp. And uh, I'm like, no, camp's an hour in the wrong direction. Negative. Go. You and your main tracker go to town. Now let's go back to camp. Anyway, we find, we go back to camp. We dress his arm. I redress him, clean his you know clean his arm. The whole thing. Finally get him out of there, and uh, and then I head back to. We spend the night and go to Billawarra the next day and and stay three days and then finally fly out. But it was such a traumatic experience. I didn't want to. They're like, do you want us to get another PH? You can hunt a couple more days. I'm like, no. Nope. <laughs> I need to just decompress. Um, that was one of the craziest things ever, but I'm thankful for one thing years ago at one of the SCI conventions, I talked to one of the older, uh, professional hunters that was a very, uh, um, one of the guys who hunt, ran, ran dogs for many, many years and was just a real pro. And he told me one thing that probably saved my life. He told me this isn't mountain lion hunting, whether they're up in the rocks or whether they're up a tree, when they see the people, when they see you, they're coming to kill you. It's not like a mountain lion. You can take a selfie with him before you take the shot. He's not coming down till you pull the dogs off. The leopard, when he sees a person, he realizes what the problem is. He realizes, no, the dogs are not the problem. Those people are the problem, and he's coming. And it's happened to a lot of people. And so that that hound hunting is it is uh, dangerous, and you do have to be prepared. But uh, I always tell people, I said, you know, if you got a dangerous game gun, you need to try to wear it out at home. So try, try to break it. Try efficiency. To, try to do- yeah do everything you can to learn what the what the vulnerabilities of your rifle are because you never know you know if you're hunting deer you don't need to do that if you're hunting a normal plains game in Africa you don't really need to do that if you're hunting dangerous game you really need to take your gun I don't care how much you paid for it you need to try to break it you need to try to rapid fire you need to work that thing over find out what the vulnerabilities are talk to people talk to gunsmiths have a gunsmith go over it I don't care how much he caught he costs you it might save you your life to have someone tune up your gun and so yeah some things you would never think about until you're in that that situation
2: so oh, absolutely and and that's one thing with like large caliber rifles and something we learned overseas is you know you take a large caliber rifle and the heat that that thing puts off per shot you know it, it takes nothing for it to cause a, a shell to swell up and that clip misses it and it doesn't extract or The bolt stiffens and gets locked in there. You know, if it's not ported and polished correctly, you know, so many little things can screw up the reload on a large caliber rifle, especially a hunting rifle like you have over there. So like you're saying, hundred percent, take the weapon out and work it because I've got one here until I had to take a follow-up shot. I didn't know that that bolt likes to expand after a shot. You know, it doesn't like to just release. So Polished job was in order and I had never known had I not gone out tinkered with it. So that's a great point. I think everyone should keep that in mind.
4: Well, another little gun, a, a little aside on the gun thing. I was in Atlanta on the way home on that trip and I ran into a fella. I don't remember his name, but he's always in some of the hunting magazines and hunts all over and does all the wins, all the awards and things. And, and so I had to tell him a leopard story because I knew he'd hunted the world. And I told him about the situation of my gun malfunctioning, and he says, "Well, without skipping a beat, he says that's why I, I use a blazer, you know, that straight pull bolt." He said, "That is the that is the fast deal." So, of course, guess what? I've got a blazer just because that's your kid. now we all like different things, you know.
2: So, so now, question: This is just coming from you know the military background. How hard is it to carry a sidearm over there for that situation?
4: It depends on the country. Um, and, um, you can, t- you can take a lot of different guns, uh, depending on the country, South Africa, you can certainly, um, take a handgun and um, there are certain handguns you can hunt with and certain ones. You can't, I know one guy that did get a letter, a, 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 you know, a personal letter approved to use a 10 millimeter on a Buffalo, which that's not allowed. You know, there's gotta be a certain, right. uh, I don't know the caliber limit. Um, we hunted in Namibia. I've hunted in Namibia a lot, probably more than South Africa, actually. Um, a friend of mine really, with one of my groups a few years ago, he really wanted to take a handgun. He loves to handgun hunt. Now, maybe you cannot handgun hunt. Um, I'd be talking out of turn if I said what Zimbabwe's rules are, but in Zimbabwe, there are, um, you know, maybe some, some ways to get a license or a permit to, to do that, but you would have to, have to check that all out ahead of time. And it's not commonly done. People do not commonly carry a sidearm in Africa, um, uh, unless it's the, the professional hunter.
2: Right. Makes sense.
1: I was going to say no need to, when you, when you're carrying a professional hunter on your side.
2: Yeah. That that's that follow-up shot. But then again, <laughs> a follow-up shot on a cat at full sprint dead at you. Yeah. You know, I don't care who you are. I know some of the best marksmen in the world. That's a tough shot. hmm you, well, you can't well, make those it, adjustments on the fly.
4: <laughs> no, it's difficult. And like I said, you know, I continue to beat myself up about the situation, but you know, in our defense, we both shot the cat in the head, right? I've got right. the skin and the skull to prove it. We both <laughs> shot the cat in the head, but we didn't <laughs> blow its brain up. So we didn't stop it. And whether <laughs> it was dead in the air, I don't know, but I mean, it bit the hell out of him. I mean, it, it, it was still alive enough to, to bite him so severely Everything that makes your hand work was, was completely destroyed and had to be reattached in an extensive surgery. Wow. And um, thankfully he was with me and on a pay on a hunt where he was getting paid quite a lot. And I was able to give him the tip money and all the extra uh, balance money and all that. So he could go to a proper hospital. Cause in Zimbabwe, you don't have money. You're in a certain, you might get somebody to help you somewhere, but you're not gonna get us to a surgeon. real money
2: they're liable to just cut it off dollars yep that's crazy well good on you for covering
1: yeah and if you didn't have the probably if you didn't have the experience of being over there and hunting or being in the those type of situations you probably things could have ended a little bit differently
4: i believe that's true i believe there's a lot of experiences and like i said uh relying on the wisdom of other other hunters and other professional hunters and And, you know, as hunters, I think we all, you know, just respect other people and and love to hear their stories and get their advice. I know I do, even though I've hunted, been fortunate enough to hunt quite a few places, especially when it comes to guides and professional hunters. I love to hear what they have to say. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to listen and take mental notes. And, and I want to learn something from, from these guys. And, and I, I, I relish that opportunity to, to visit with these people. And of course, I've got this, this crazy fantastic story of this one guy told me one thing that might have saved my life you know kind of thing
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you know it's kind of funny is i've always kind of lived by something my father told me when i was young you know we would be at the local gun clubs or whatever shooting and this that, and the other thing and be around a lot of old timers and guys have done it for a long time hunting and fishing and stuff my dad said god gives you two ears and one mouth so you can talk half as much as you listen and you live by that because you know because that's the only way you're going to learn if you talk like you know everything then you're not going to listen and you're not going to learn a thing and i just something i live by and when you said that i was just like it's it's just a perfect time to talk about it because it's just it's one of those things if you listen it saved your life
2: hence me not saying a word i'm just letting you guys do your thing i'm loving this
1: (laughs) Um, Philip, I do have one last question for you, my friend. And, and that is, you know, we ask everybody this and I'm very, I'm looking forward to this answer from this, honestly, is, uh, what drives you outdoors?
4: You know, first of all, as a Christian, I love God's creation. And that is one of the things that I have just felt so fortunate to be able to travel the world and hunt, you know, hunting in a forest in Mongolia, you know, hunting up in the, up in the sparsely covered mountains in Kyrgyzstan, in the Zambezi Valley, in, in, uh, in Zimbabwe, all over South Africa, you know, been to Australia many times, and Namibia, which I call my second home. I absolutely love it. I love the people. I love the animals. I love the landscapes. I just, uh, I feel a little more home maybe in that desert environment because that's kind of what I'm from. But uh, I really, I really love the chance to be out and admire God's creation. That's part of it. And now um, I've gotten to go enough overseas that I really am enjoying the chance to take other guys hunting with me, put together a group of guys to take them on safari. Guys that have hunted all over and done all kinds of things, but they've never ventured out of the country and certainly not to Africa. Um, and, And being able to be that guy to just help put a group together help them with all their questions and the uncertainties and the worries, um, being able to put those all to rest and, and help them to organize and have a really fun safari and get to share my love of Africa with them. That's one of the things that I have really uh, kind of turned up a notch the last few years. I, I've, I've done all these other hunts by myself. I mean, I've, I've only been on you know a couple of group hunts ever. I mean, I've gone all over the world by myself. And, uh, and I love that, I mean, I do. But, uh, but at this point in my hunting career, I, I really feel, um, I really feel that, that there's a need to, uh, to do what I'm doing and putting together groups of hunters and help them, help them go realize that dream that I got to achieve back in my mid twenties. And, uh, I just, I always say there's nothing like a first safari. There's just nothing uh, like that first experience. It's not just the hunting. It's the hunting and the landscape and the people and the food and the culture. It's all those things yeah it's great to hunt here we all the different things we can do whether it's waterfowl or upland birds or elk in colorado you name it we it's it's all brilliant but you're still here and uh when you get to go visit another culture um that's just really a lot of fun so that's driving me at the moment just the, the opportunity to share um share these beautiful places the beautiful landscapes and these fun people uh, with, uh, with other folks has just been a lot of fun for me and I can't wait. I leave in two weeks to go to the Eastern Cape of South Africa and, uh, just, uh, just really look forward to getting over there and, and just enjoying the diversity of game and that beautiful country there.
1: And I think there's a big misconception too, was, is, is that you can do a fairly reasonable price hunt over there and everyone thinks that it's this big extravagant thing and it's a ton of money, but like a planes game hunt or something to kind of just get your feet wet.
4: There's so many opportunities. And that has has been one of the funniest things for me, having a conversation with guys and them being so astonished when I tell them that they can go hunt with me and hunt 10 days, 12 animals for $6,400 in South Africa. Just a a brilliant um, uh, hunt with a diversity of animals. I mean, all the big stuff. It's not some, um, you know... It's not some bait and switch. This is all the big stuff the big, kudu, gimsbuck, wildebeest, all the big stuff for that kind of price. And most guys will tell me, wow, I thought for sure it's 20 or 30,000, even for just something basic. And so, where that misconception comes from, I don't know. But there's a lot of misconceptions about hunting, like we talked about with anti hunting or just the people that are kind of hunting agnostic, I guess. They just don't know anything. Um, to even our guys that, that hunt and, and love hunting and hunt every season, every chance they can. But they don't know that they can hunt Africa for the price of a decent whitetail hunt. And when I get the chance to share that with people, they're just astonished. They're like, maybe I can do this. And how much is this? And what about this? And how much the airfare? And what can we do? And uh they then they start getting excited like a little kid because they realize they can realize that dream. It's not that far-fetched.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. The first time I heard about it, it was the same way. I'm like, Are You kidding me? It's yeah. not that bad. I, you know, it's, that's, it's really less than
2: any guided whitetail hunt we've ever looked at. Exactly. I mean, exactly. It's, it's stupid.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's a world of difference, but, but I have, uh, I've loved hunting over there. I've tuned up my, my, uh, gear that I take. I, I do some YouTube videos. I'm not a huge YouTube star or anything, but I've been very built, very targeted videos that are helping guys with their first safari, what to pack, um, what to to do to practice shooting off sticks and things like that. And I keep them very short and very basic. So I'm not going to bore anybody. I'm not here to try to be some mouthpiece. I'm going to give you a very short video that gives you some information and makes you think. So um, even so far as going to putting one together about air travel, what to expect, what to take with you. Because I tell the guys, I said, Africa's great. There's nothing I can do about the horrible flight over there. It's a long time on an airplane. And so I do all these things to try to uh, answer some of their questions ahead of time. Tell them what to pack. I tell them what, what should you do? uh, Even if it's two or three years to your safari, well, i tell them it's never too early to have your gun that you like that you shoot. Well, that's a proper caliber hunting boots that you've been wearing that fit and are broken in. And of course, have your passport. Don't wait on that till the last minute. Um, The other things you can throw together, but have your key things ready, having boots that are broken. We all know that, but a lot of guys get know that too. And they get excited. We're going to Africa. They buy all new stuff. Yep. And I'm like, no, don't do that. (laughs) So if I can help those, I can help guys. I don't care if they're hunting with me or not. I'm just, I just love sharing my experiences. And so the YouTube is one way to do that. So people can just look me up on YouTube, just type in Philip glass hunter and it'll come up and, and you can see a couple of those and just, you know, um, just kind of see what I've been up to
2: outstanding well where else can everybody find you
4: of course i'm on facebook just philip glass i'm on instagram real philip glass i try to share uh hunting and outdoor stuff on probably on instagram more than facebook but certainly i do both um they're welcome to contact me anyway um and i'm here to answer people's questions about whether they want to come hunt with me in texas um whether they want to go with me on a safari they're welcome to to get in touch, even if they just have questions about going on safari. I'm just, I'm just happy to happy to help where I can help people realize that dream that, that I got to realize when I was in my twenties.
2: Outstanding. Well, we greatly appreciate you jumping on here and spreading this vast knowledge because it's not something that's talked about a whole lot. So we really do appreciate you and getting this out there to the, to everyone to listen to. And if you've ever considered it, guys, it's less than a whitetail hunt like you heard if you have questions reach out get the information educate yourself and prepare for it and that's really all i can say about that go experience it for yourself and until then guys thanks for taking the ride right here on the outdoor drive